0: We are going to continue through the book of Zephaniah this morning, and I want to ask you again, or we ask the question again, looking at the word of God from his prophet Zephaniah, is there any hope? If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, glad that you're here, Uh, glad that you have uh, come out. Uh, To worship with us this morning, Uh, we are spending the next several weeks looking at uh, the minor prophet Zephaniah. And his book, I would say, is minor for most people in that I have been going to Baptist churches for almost 30 years now and have never heard a sermon from Zephaniah, and you may be the same. Uh, If so, this is your second. If you have heard one, I would be very surprised if you've heard two. Uh, But uh, uh, God's Word is speaking through the prophet Zephaniah this morning. So if you have that, uh, if you're having trouble finding it, go to the book of Matthew and just turn backwards a few pages. When you have that, if you'll stand with me this morning out of reverence to the Word of God. Zephaniah writes for us, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a well from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Well, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon will become a desolation. And Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Cana, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you old seacoast shall be pastures and meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. You may be seated. So that's a lot to take in. Uh, Some of it sounded pretty bad. Some of it sounded not as bad. This passage here introduces us in Zephaniah to a theme that is present in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a theme that, while you may not often think of it, is very relevant for us today. If you look at the whole of human history, we see that God has been involved from before the beginning, He was present before He began to speak in Genesis chapter 1 and things began to be made. We read, if you go to the end of the book, if you will, if you go to the last chapter, if you skip ahead and you read there what is present, we we see that there is a time coming when God is bringing all things to conclusion. All the things that He has created are time that He has given us, this earth that we live upon, this creation that we look at all around us, He is bringing it quickly to an end. And it may not seem quickly for you because we look and we see thousands of years of human history and we, we think about all the things that we have ahead of us and we think about where technology is taking us and things like that, but yet we must realize that for God, All of creation will take place, all of human history, everything around us will take place in but a moment. And so as everything moves quickly toward the end of time and the end of creation when Christ will return and He will make all things new, we have described as a part of that the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, God's day, the day when everything that is wrong will be set right. When everything that we have messed up with our sin, God will make perfect. And on that day when everything that God has made, He will perfect, we are promised that in that day, you and I who are in Christ will be made eternal. What I mean by that is that we will go from this physical state that we live in where we are decaying to a physical state where we will live for eternity with God. It's an exciting day that you and I should look forward to and while you may not think that it involves you very much, let me promise you that it does and it involves you whether or not you want it to. as a matter of fact, we'll look at a passage here where Some of the people are saying God will do neither good nor ill. They just don't care. And yet you see that they get caught up in the Lord's day as well. It involves them. And so let's look at what he says about the Lord's day and what he says about the time when God will come and set all things right. He says in verse 7 to be silent before the Lord for the day of the Lord is near. We should be in reverent awe of the fact that our God is concerned about human history and not only concerned, but there are a number of things in human history with which God is not pleased. And because of that, there will be a great day of judgment. I know that's not popular, I don't really apologize to you for it. It's in the Bible, and you get all of it, so you know, kind of deal with it. There'll be good sermons later. Happy, cheery, you know. But God has promised that because of our sin, because sin has separated us from Him, there is a day coming of judgment, and He calls on His people to stand in reverent awe of that day. And then he goes on to tell us some things and some attitudes that will not save us in that day. And yet, I would tell you that there are things that we, even as the people of God, try, sometimes try to use to save ourselves. Look at the things he says will not save us on his day. First, there is government He says in verse 8, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, the day of the Lord, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. It's pretty harsh. Remember from two weeks ago who Zephaniah is. He is related to the king, he is a descendant of King Hezekiah. Therefore, he is a part of the royal court. He's a distant cousin of the king of Judah. And yet he stands there in his prophecy and he tells them, on that day the officials and the king's sons will be destroyed. When he's riding at this time, Josiah's sons were both somewhere around 10 and 8 years old. And yet he stands up and he, he says, the king's sons will be destroyed. Friends, you and I need to realize that whatever structures we have put in place, whatever things are ahead of us, they are not things that will save us. If we go back into the book of 1 Samuel, we see that the people of God demanded a king. They didn't need a king. They had a king. But they wanted one. They wanted a king even though they were promised that He would bring upon them heavy burdens, that He would tax them heavily, that He would enslave their children. They still wanted a king. And friends, too often you and I, even though we realize that regardless of who we put into some political office, they do not have the power to save, we turn to them looking for salvation. Well, I'm glad that on that day, that day that God comes, that day that He sets things right, there is no need for government. We have no more need for any type of political leader. Because God will be our leader. He will be our leader for eternity. He will never fail. He will never lie to us. He will never lead us astray. He will never take us into debt. He will never take us anywhere that we don't need to go. Because He's God. And knows exactly what we need. Government does not save. Number two, look in verse 9. And on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. What a silly superstition this is. And yet the people in the time that Zephaniah is writing and people even in our own day believe that superstitions will save them. Think about it. Everyone who leaps over the threshold. We all go back to our childhood and apparently it's become popular again because my children like to talk about it. You know, you don't step on the crack or you'll do what? What? Break your mama's back, that's correct. There's cracks right here, there's one right here. I fully expect to get a call from my father later that my mother has been seriously injured because I stepped on the crack of this stage. It's ridiculous, right? Think about all the things in this world that are completely ridiculous, and yet people are fully convinced of them. You may remember not too many years back, They found a group of people, I believe it was in Southern California, and they had all drank a poisonous drink and covered their faces with veils because they were fully expecting that an alien spaceship riding on the back of a comet was going to pick them up as they died. Now friends, that's ridiculous. And yet, all those people are dead. They fully believed it. They were willing to sacrifice their lives for the belief of a great lie. Well, trust me that superstitions will not save. As a matter of fact, you look, he goes on at the end of that verse when he talks about filling their master's house with violence and fraud. He is talking here about people who are making sacrifices to false gods. Think about how violent many of those sacrifices were. The killing of children, the killing of innocent adults just for the pleasure of false gods. Friends, too many of the people that we know have put their hope in false superstitions. And let me promise you that those superstitions do not save. On top of that superstition in verse 10, as we just mentioned, idols. If you look at the end of verse 10, we see that on that day a cry will be heard from the fish gate and a whale from the second quarter. And at the end there, a loud crash from the hills. If we look throughout the Old Testament, we see that there were places of worship to these false gods set up on the hills. On that day, God is going to remove the false idols. Now you and I don't drive along now and look up on the hills of Burke County and see places where people have built idols. You might say some of the fancy houses, that's give or take, but some of them are really nice. I, I think we'd all like to live with a view like some of those have. But see, our idols no longer sit up on hills. Our idols sit in our bank accounts. Our idols sit in our homes. Our idols sit on television. That's where we have put our idols. And too many people worship them proudly. But they don't save. And on that day, God will destroy those idols. Friends, those are three things right here that I do not believe are mutually for people who are lost without Christ. Many of these things are problems that you and I have in our lives. We have problems with idols. We have problems with superstition. Friends, I hear it all the time. I hear people who talk about things that are in this book that are not really there. Either their country superstitions or their American superstitions or whatever they are, but they are not the Word of God, and yet people attempt to proclaim them as such. We need to guard ourselves against these things because God has promised that on that day, that day when He comes, they are things that will not save. Look at the second thing there's some attitudes He gives here that do not save. Look in verse 12. He's talked about their silver and gold not working. Again, money, an idol that will not save. And in verse 12, he says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. If you think about it, this is a time well before electricity, and so everything is very dark. And we get this sense that God's judgment is not this broad thing where He just passes it on everybody oftentimes we see judgment that happened to a large number of people and and there were some good people who were involved with it. But here we see that God scrutinizes the people of Jerusalem. He he is pictured here as taking a lamp and, and going house to house, place to place, person to person. And the person that's mentioned here are those who are complacent If you look at this in the original language of Hebrew, you would see that this refers to the dregs. And I don't drink wine, but apparently at the bottom of a a large vat of wine, there would be these dregs, much like you would see in coffee or tea at the bottom. You ever get to that point where there's just that stuff? I always have concerns about my sweet tea if there's that stuff in the bottom, because we have filters and stuff that's supposed to keep that out. That stuff's nasty. I mean, I don't want any of it. Well, that's what he says about people who he is judging. They have gotten to the bottom and they have become literally useless for God. They have no purpose whatsoever. They're like the dregs. He judges those who are complacent and he accompanies with that at the end of verse 12 and those who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good nor will he do evil this is a person who has become basically agnostic about God they really just don't care maybe they have went through difficult circumstances maybe they dealt with hard times and so they no longer believe that God is going to do good They no longer believe that it's possible that God is going to do good for them. Equally offensive to God is those who do not believe that he will do ill. That's the message that far too many of our churches are preaching today. We we no longer want to believe that God would, would pour out his judgment, that God would punish. The devil really likes it when we perpetrate that lie. The devil likes it when we say there are no consequences for sin. That there is no consequence for leaving God, abandoning God, disobeying God. Listen, God has given us every opportunity to turn back to Him. extends His arms in love. He wraps them around us. He reaches down and pulls us out of our dark situations. But, if we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and we work our way all the way through Revelation 21, we find out that God is a jealous God. And God wants our affection. And when we give our affection away, He is upset. Every one of you in this room who is married, you realize that if you give your affection to someone else as opposed to your spouse, you have caused extreme damage to your relationship. How could it be any different with God who calls us His bride? For us to believe that God will not do ill is a great lie. And friends, there are millions this morning who believe it fully. But it is not an attitude that will save. Things that will not save, attitudes that do not save. And so, with those things not saving, look at what God begins to do. We don't have time to to go through this in great, great detail, but if you begin to look in verses 14 through 18, we see God pouring out His destruction. In verse 13, we see those who are complacent and those who, who are agnostic, those who don't care, those who don't believe God will do things. We see their goods are plundered and they can't inhabit their houses and they plant vineyards and get no wine. And then we come to Verse 14, and he says, The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. And look what kind of day it is. Verse 15, a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Theologically, this is called a theophany. A theophany is when God appears to people. If we go back and we look in the book of Exodus, we see where God appears to the people at Mount Sinai. He appears to His people. They have been rescued out of Egypt, and now they have come to Mount Sinai, and God appears to them. Do you remember what happens? You would think it's a great thing, right? These are God's people. He's just rescued them out of Egypt. He's just saved them from slavery, and they are excited to see God. No. No, they're, they're far from excited to see God. Remember, it's not a bad thing in this instance that God is appearing. He's making a covenant with them, He's giving His law to them, but they are scared to death. They're scared to death because when God appears, there is darkness. There is clouds. There is the trumpet blast. And they beg. They beg. Don't let God do that again. Moses, you talk to God. You talk to God, but but that was scary, that was frightening. Now, you would have thought that that would have been one of those instances where, when they saw the power of God, when they saw the majesty of His presence, that would have straightened them out and they would have walked the straight and narrow of the rest of their lives. That's not what happened. But the day of the Lord that He is describing here is infinitely worse, it's infinitely scarier. Everything that they've relied on has passed away. Look in verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Look at this, their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. There is no value in human life in this day because these are those who have sinned against God. He says in verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. It doesn't matter how much money they've got. We unfortunately live in a day where it is believed that money will get you out of anything. Money will save you from your problems. Your silver and gold will make you able to do whatever you want. If you break the law, you can hire the best attorney and they will find a way to get you out. What may be on that day. That many are scrambling for good attorneys to stand before the Lord and make their case. But there is only one who can stand before the Lord on that day and plead our case. And if Christ pleads our case, we have all hope. And if He says He doesn't know us, then we have none. It's a dark day. And we should not forget it. He says in the fire in the end of verse 18, in the fire of his jealousy, the earth shall be consumed. We have worshiped others and God is jealous for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Friends, that's depressing. Some preachers get up and they preach this and they're excited. You know, all the drunks are going to hell type thing. I mean, that's what they they like it for some reason. There's no excitement here. Zephaniah brings this message with heartache because he sees that it is his people, the people who had a chance to follow God and be with God who have so quickly abandoned him. God's wrath is inflicted. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, God makes a covenant with the people. And he says, if you do this, I will bless you in this way and in this way and in this way and this way and this way. I will give you this and I will give you that. If you will follow me and obey me and trust me alone, I will pour out great blessings like you can never imagine. But he says, if you do not, I will curse you in this way and in this way and in this way. And friends, here is the outpouring of that promise. But there's hope. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. There is hope. He says, gather together, yes, gather. Gather together, yes, gather, oh shameless nation. He tells them, he says, listen, you are the people that I've been talking about. You are the people who are complacent. You're the people who have sinned against God. You're the people who are not living up to your part of the deal. He says, God made a deal with you. God promised you great things if you would follow Him. He says, gather together before... Look, three things. Verse 2, before the decree takes effect, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord. He says, there is time... It's not happened yet. The day has not come yet. God has not punished yet. God has not poured out His wrath yet. He says, there is time. So gather together and this is what you need to do. And friends, here it is for us. Here is what you and I should set our hearts to doing. Look in verse 3. First, seek the Lord seek the Lord doesn't that seem so simple three words three words that overcome all of this that he's been talking about You can go back into the sermon from two weeks ago in verses 1-6 through and we see this destruction that God brings upon the world and that He brings upon uh, Jerusalem and Judah. We see all of that. And it comes to verse 3 and He says, Seek the Lord. That is a powerful statement for us. Because I promise you, That there are times each and every day where we do not seek the Lord, but rather we seek after things of our own making. We seek after things of this world and we try to fill them into that place that God has for us. We try to fill them into that place that God wants to occupy in our life. And he says, seek the Lord. Now look, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. He's he's not talking here about those people who are far off. These are people who are already, already doing the things of God, already following after the things of God. And He says, seek the Lord. Look at the next one. Seek righteousness. Seek the Lord and seek righteousness. These people in chapter 1, are seeking everything but the things of God. Everything but those things which are righteous. Everything but those things which are worthy and God-honoring. He tells us, seek righteousness. And then thirdly here, seek humility. Why would he say seek humility? If we sought the Lord, we seek after righteousness, why would the third one be seek humility? Because friends, the attitude that we see in chapter 1 is an attitude of pride. Believing that you know better than God is an attitude of pride. Believing that you can do things better than God can do them is an attitude of pride. God hates the proud. He doesn't dislike the proud. He doesn't have a problem with the proud. God hates pride. And it's pride that would keep you from seeking the Lord and seeking His righteousness. Look at the next line. He says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now the perhaps there is not a, you got a 50-50 chance. It's not a, It's not a maybe, it'll happen. The perhaps is a humble expectation of what God is going to do. Friends, you and I can have great confidence that God is going to save us. We can have great confidence that God is going to give us His grace and His mercy. He is going to take us to be with heaven. He is going to cleanse us in the blood of Christ. You and I can have confidence in all of those things, but we better do so with humility. Because regardless of what God has promised that He would do for us, we still remain unworthy of what He will do. We can have confidence because of the cross of Christ. We can have confidence because when Jesus died there, he took upon our sins and died in our place. But we better do so with humility. We better do so realizing that he did not have to go to the cross for us. That we did not do anything to deserve his death for us. And so when Zephaniah writes perhaps, he writes perhaps with confidence, but he writes perhaps with humility. God's promised from the beginning that those who seek the Lord, who seek righteousness, who seek humility will be saved. You go back and look at every covenant that He's made. It's all about following after Him. But He does so with humility. If we, as we look at these last few verses, we're given, we're given a message for the cities of Philistia For Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. These are all cities of the seacoast. And they're all cities of the Philistines who, if you've read much from the Bible, you understand were the enemies of God's people. As a matter of fact, Goliath was part of the Philistine army. And he talks about maybe God will hide his people on the day of his anger. He says, but that's not going to happen for these cities. And it's very interesting that he talks about them being part of the seacoast. See, the problem for these people is they were inhabiting a place that God had promised for his people. If you look at the map as described to Uh, as described in the Old Testament as as the place of God's people where God had promised, you'll find that these cities that are mentioned here, while not at this time under the control of Judah, are a part of what God has promised to His people. And God says, I'm going to keep my promise. He says, if you repent, as He talks about in verses 1 through 3, I will keep my promise. Look, in verse 7, as he ends this section, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. God keeps His promises to His people. That's something He promised a long time ago. Generation after generation had, had went had went by and not seen the fruits of that promise. And yet he says, I will keep my promise. Because in the end, when the end comes, when destruction comes, when my judgment comes, I will keep my promise and my people shall have what is theirs. Friends, you and I need to realize that even though this day of the Lord is great and terrible, a day of darkness and distress... God has promised to His people that He will never leave them nor forsake them, that He will save them in that day, that He will give them deliverance through that day, and that He will give them their inheritance that He has promised from the beginning. You and I need to turn from our sin. We need to turn from our reliance on other things. And we need to seek after the Lord. We seek Him because we are His friend. If you look in these verses, you see person after person. You see country and nation that are described as His enemy. You and I, He is called His friend. If we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He has called us His friend. He has called us His sons and daughters. He has called us joint heirs with Christ. We seek Him because we are His friend, not His enemy. If you go back and look, in verse 14 of chapter 1, He says, "...the day of the Lord is near." near and hastening fast friends you and i need to prepare for that day you might say pastor i i know christ i i I believe in christ i've been saved i've been baptized i'm prepared for that day no we are never prepared for that day because there are people in our world who still need to hear the message We are never fully prepared for that day because Christ has sent us out into the world to tell other people that He has sent His Son to save them from their sin, to save them from this day of judgment, but to save them to an eternity with Him forever. You and I come humbly before God because it's only by His grace that we have been saved. We come boldly because we have confidence in Christ, but we come humbly because we did not deserve it. But we should go confidently, telling other people about how they can know Christ. Listen, the day of the Lord is real. It's as real as the day that we have right now. It's as real as all of us gathered here in this service this morning. It is not some fairy tale. It is not some um, day that will not be as bad as it's made out that the prophet just really talked it up to scare people. It's a final day. And that may be the scariest part of all. That after that day, God has decided. People have made their decision. Will they follow God or reject God? And that day is hastening quickly. It's coming soon. And God tells us to be ready. We shouldn't be afraid. But we should be called to action. Because we have been given the only message of hope that saves in the day of the Lord. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful. We are grateful that we have salvation in you. God, salvation that is active and working, even, God, when we are worried or scared. God, I thank you that you have saved us not only to a wonderful eternity with You, but God, from the punishment that we deserve for our sin. God, You removed our sin from us through the precious blood of Christ. And God, so I'd ask this morning that those who are here who do not know You, God, would seek You They would seek to find the great hope that they can have in you, the hope, God, that is for today and for tomorrow and for all eternity. The hope that is only found in turning from their sin, from their idols and from their complacency and turning to you. God, there are those here this morning who, who God don't know you. My hope and prayer is that, God, you're speaking to their heart right now. Let your word penetrate their heart. God, just help us in this time. Help us to know you. Help us to seek you. And God, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing a song as we begin to finish up our service. And I want to encourage you with this this morning. Preparation for the Lord's Day is about seeking after Him. And the people of God want to be prepared. The people of God desire within their heart to prepare themselves for what God has ahead of them. And so I'd like to ask you during this time, if you know Christ, if you believe in Him and trust in Him, that you would prepare your heart. That you would seek after Him and ask Him to prepare you for what He has ahead. Would you respond to God as we sing this morning?